Good morning, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn to uh, the book of Mark, chapter 1, and Genesis, chapter 3. Uh, Genesis 3, probably go there first. It's the beginning of the Bible. And then also Mark 1. Today, we conclude our series on the Holy Spirit, which I think is and has been one of the most transformative series we've done as a church. It has changed the way we pray as a church, what we expect when we even gather together as a church on Sundays and in our CGs. And it's giving us a whole new way of seeing the way of Jesus and how we live into the, the life of Jesus on this earth. Remember, the Spirit was given to the church that we might have union with God and from that union carry our the, on the work and the mission of Christ doing the stuff that Jesus did. And we began our series on the theology of the Spirit, who the Spirit is, and in the last five weeks, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the activity of the Spirit in the church today, what we've been calling the stuff of the Spirit. That's what we've been talking about. So we talked about prophecy a few weeks ago and tongues, that was fun, um, and healing a, f- a couple of weeks ago. And then uh, Darren did a lecture on a, a midweek lecture that's available online on growing in the power of the Spirit. And today I want to teach, I want to end our series by teaching on deliverance. Deliverance from evil or Satan. Um, for some of you who saw your in-laws and extended family this weekend, <laughs> you're like, whoa. This is like four days too late, like four days. If you have a Bible, John, uh, Genesis 3, Mark 1, that's where we're at. Uh, let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, in all seriousness, we know that the, the reality of evil uh, overtakes us every single day in our news cycles and in our daily lives, even maybe in, internally in our own minds, and our own hearts. I know there are many people here who have been like habitually, chronically struggling with something that they know is deeper than just a habit. And I pray that you would, in Jesus' name today, bring freedom. That you would, by your authority and the authority that you've given your church, Jesus, bring about the freedom that the kingdom of God brings when it, when it comes in power. That you would free us from lies, that you would free us from oppression, you would free us from even those of us that might be experiencing demonic activity in our lives. We're not afraid, Jesus, because you've given us your spirit. And your spirit is greater, the the, the spirit that lives in us, he who lives in us is greater than he who lives in the world. So we we do not fear God, and so we pray that as we step forward, we step forward in faith, in full confidence and assurance of your finished work on the cross. Jesus, we come under that authority, the authority that you have now. Would you anoint me, use me, teach us. We sit under, the, under your word and we pray that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To frame up this teaching, I want to start here. And it's on the screen. I think this is really, really important as we begin this teaching on deliverance is that there is no uncontested space. Write this down. There is no uncontested space. To live on this earth is to live in conflict. Conflict is a part of our entire society. It's a part of our families. We might have experienced this this last week. It's a part of our friendships, a part of our marriages. Conflict is even a part of what goes on in our hearts and in our minds constantly. I grew up, when I grew up, we grew up with Saturday morning cartoons, meaning you had to wait until Saturday morning to watch cartoons. Like literally wait till Saturday morning. This was before Cartoon Network. This was before The Simpsons. This was before YouTube. I remember the images of the angel and the devil fighting for Daffy Duck or for Pluto. Do you guys remember these images? These images, I grew up, these are seared in my mind. And, and, I, and, I, and I understand them because I knew this turmoil even at a young age. Even I was watching these on Saturday morning eating my cereal. I would have this pull to steal something or to tell the truth. The battle within me to do right or to do wrong. There is no uncontested space, not even in our own minds. Good and evil are the part of every corner of this world. But where did this come from? Where did evil come from? And that's why I had you turn to Genesis chapter 3. Something that you might know, maybe not, but the Bible never says that in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world perfectly. 
It never uses the word perfect. Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates everything, it, the word that's never used is perfect. It, God created the world and it was complete. It was shalomed. It was integrated. It was harmonious. Adam and Eve were created to co-rule the earth, which we'll see what that means in a second. And then Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, you get this language here. Now the serpent. And you're reading, when you're reading Genesis 1 and 2, everything is going pretty amazingly. Things are good and orderly. And there was, there was harmony. But chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent. And you're like, who is this thing? was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God did made. And he said to the woman, and the next thing you're probably thinking is, why is this snake talking? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now you could read the Bible cover to cover, looking for a simple, clear answer to the question, where is the origin of evil? And you will not find an answer. The ultimate origin of evil is not explained in the Bible. It seems that the Bible compels us to accept in the opening pages of the Bible just to accept the mystery of evil. When we look at Genesis 3, evil in this form, it takes on the form of a serpent, seems to have shown up unannounced, already formed without explanation or rationale. You're not told anything about this serpent. God creates the world. It's not perfect. It's harmonious. It's shalomed. Everything's, everything's integrated. It's the way that God intended it. But then there's the serpent. Where did he come from? We're not told, why is he more crafty than any, any all the other things? Why can he talk? We're not told any of this stuff. All we observe from this scene is that it's not right. Snakes aren't supposed to talk. We know this to be true. This isn't Harry Potter. Like snakes aren't supposed to talk. We also observe from this scene that this snake is not God and the snake is not another human being. It's not God, it's not human. Meaning evil wasn't a part of God nor part of humanity or what it even means to be human, it's separate. We also observe that this snake comes from within creation. It was not a regular animal since it talked, but it's still part of creation. Therefore, what we know about evil is that it comes from within creation in some sense, but not from human creation, meaning it's not in humanity. We were once without sin. So the only other created being capable of such thought and speech are angelic beings. And this is exactly what we find, on, find out later on in scripture, that this serpent here is not just any normal snake. Now, you have to do that to understand that you turn to the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, go to the very end of the Bible. Now, if you're new, you're like, um, I'm like new to this thing, but I know you just can't skip all the stuff in the middle. I know that. Okay, just go, but go to the end for a second. I'm trying to make a point of who the snake is and in, in the Garden of Eden and how he got there, but we're not really told that until the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 12. Check out this verse of scripture. Revelation 12, verse seven. Turn there. It says, then a war broke out in heaven. Michael, who is an archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not, he, meaning the dragon, was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. And here it is, almost like a side comment. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Wow, this is such an incredible text. Here's what we learned from this text. Not even heaven is uncontested. Even in heaven, there's a war. War breaks out between angelic beings, the dragon and his army versus Michael and his army. The dragon's not strong enough and loses his place in heaven and is hurled down, meaning hurled down to earth in some way. We don't know when this happened, but we can assume it happened sometime before Genesis chapter three. That dragon is also called the serpent, which is exactly what Genesis three calls him. He was actually the devil and the devil seems bent on leading the whole world astray. Are you guys following? So back to Genesis chapter three. What is the serpent doing in the garden? 
All we know from later on in the story is that the serpent is bent on leading the entire world astray. However, Genesis 3 is a part of actually a larger story, a story that we find out later is actually going on in heaven. There's a war going on in heaven. We don't know this until later, but Genesis 3, you're like, you're like dropped into the middle of an ongoing story where there's already a war taking place. And if you actually reread Genesis chapter 1, you find hints to how this is actually true. Genesis 1:27. turn there in your Bibles. Go to the left, Genesis 1, verse 27. Look at how God explains, how it explains how God created the world or humanity, Adam and Eve. It says, so God created mankind, us, in his image, in his own image. And the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, you guys know this, be fruitful and increase the number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, here's the thing. That word subdue is a warfare conquest word. Why in the world is a warfare world, word used in Genesis chapter one? It seems that our story is dropped, our story, humanity's story, Adam and Eve's story, is dropped into a story in progress that we're given hints of later on in scripture that there is a cosmic heavenly war already in progress. And God has created humanity, Adam and Eve, and placed us in this world to bring about the good and the beautiful, to basically spread his shalom all over the planet, to take his world and shalom it. He placed us in the garden. He goes, I want you to take what I've done here for you and I want you to take it. I want you to subdue the whole world. I want you to take this whole earth and I want you to bring my shalom and my peace everywhere. However, in Genesis chapter three, the serpent got in and led the whole world astray. Which brings up all kinds of questions like, when did that happen? When did Satan show up on the earth? Why did created angels turn to become rebellious? Where were the angels themselves tempted by something evil like the serpent tempted Eve? Where did evil come from that led created angels to fall who then led humans to fall? And the thing is the Bible doesn't answer any of those questions. It gives us clues. In Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 19 we have clues but we don't get answers. Two reasons scholars have come up with as to why God doesn't use the Bible to explain the origins of evil are this. First, because evil makes no sense. That is, one of the things about evil is it doesn't make sense. The second something evil happens in the world and someone gets up to try to explain it, they, they look like an idiot. You eventually start to look like Job's friends. Well, this happened to you because you're doing this and this happened to you because this happened. But all the while, all we know, there's actually this war going on in heaven that Job lives out of, that no one else has a clue about. And they all look dumb because they're telling Job to repent of something he should never be repenting of because Job's a righteous man. See, evil makes no sense. This is why uh, scholars say the Bible doesn't explain evil because it makes no sense. But the second reason is this. God doesn't waste time explaining evil. He's preoccupied with overcoming evil. So this goes back to where we started. There is no uncontested space. Humanity was created in the middle of contested space. Or said differently, humanity was created in a war zone. Now are you... Are you following along at all? Okay, now we're ready for Jesus and demons, okay? So that is very important to understand. Now are you ready for Jesus and demons? Now go to John, 1 John 3. If you're in Revelation, just turn over to the left a little bit. 1 John chapter 3. A few pages over from Revelation. This is what John says about Jesus. He says, dear children. Oh, John 3, 7, did I say that? Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Look at verse eight. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. Why did Jesus appear on this earth? John says to destroy the work of the devil. I believe 1 John 3, 8 is the shortest and most potent explanation of the gospel. Jesus has come to destroy the work of the devil, to undo what, that which happened in the garden, to set free from tyranny and oppression people who have been held captive by the devil and have held captive by evil. 
Now let's just pause here for a second. Because that was a whole lot in, the la in like, what, six, seven, 12, 30 minutes? I don't know how long that was. But that was a lot, right? You're probably just like kind of spinning on this still. Let's just stop right here for a second. You might be thinking, are, are you seriously talking about the devil right now? Like, are you literally, modern people don't talk uh, or take seriously the devil anymore. That's not what we do anymore. How in the world are you, why are you talking about the devil? This past week, The Atlantic, the magazine, ran a serious long form article on exorcisms called American Exorcism. Priests are finding more requests than ever for help with demonic possession and centuries old practice is finding new footing in the modern world. Very, I think it's a very important article. In this article, it says that, that both belief in the demonic and the requests for exorcisms are on the rise in America. Polls conducted in recent decades by Gallup and the data firm YouGov suggest that roughly half of Americans believe demonic possession is real. The percentage who believe in the devil is even higher and in fact has been growing. Gallup polls show that the number rose from 55% in 1990 to up to 70% in 2007. As our, 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 our nation is becoming more and more secular, meaning we believe less and less in God, less and less in things beyond what we can measure and see, there's actually an uptick and an increase in believing in the demonic. The priest he interviewed for this article said that he had nearly 1,800 requests for exorcism so far this year. And it was October that, this, that, he, that he ended his counting. From January to October, eight, this one priest, 1,800 requests for exorcisms. After interviewing people who have been demonized and even referred to pre, people who've been referred to priests by clinical psychologists, the writer of this article, who is a modern person himself with modern apprehensions, is left wondering this. He says, the inescapable question is why? Or rather, why now? Why in our modern age are so many people turning to the church for help in banishing demons from their body? And what does this resurgent interest tell us about the figurative demons tormenting contemporary society? His conclusion later on in the article is that so many modern social ills fall dark and menacing and beyond human control. He's like, the, the, the society, is, this is what the article, the, the writer is saying. He's like, I think the problem is, this is my theory, is that our society has, is so beyond human control. Things like drug addiction and loss of jobs and blighted communities. He says, maybe these crises have led people to believe that other more supernatural forces are at work. That's why they think it's demonic. And so he tries his theory out with um, a Yale historian. And he interviews a Yale historian who is a historian of the early modern period. And the historian says to him, that's not actually true. He says, actually, histor history says, you will always see an uptick in demonization when a society turns from Christianity and religion ebbs in a nation. His reasoning is because people hunger for contact with that, for what he calls the supernatural. And when people turn from God, they get involved with all kinds of demonic things, even without knowing it. When you move away from God, people knowingly or unknowingly open their lives to all sorts of demonic activity. And here's the point. There is no uncontested space. You do not live in a neutral zone. Humans do not live in neutral space. Turn your Bibles to Luke. And let's talk about the ministry of Jesus for a second. Luke chapter four, verse 18. I've read this before. We, we actually started our Holy Spirit series in this text, so I won't elaborate on it, though it's an amazing text of scripture. But, but Jesus, having just come off his baptism, is, has entered a synagogue where he's about to teach. The, the reading that day comes from Isaiah. The scroll attendant grabs the scroll, says, Jesus, would you read this and then teach us something from this text? Hands him the scroll and Jesus opens up the scroll and he finds this place where it's written. Look at verse 18. He finds this place where it's written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has set me to, proc- to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, he rolled the scroll back up, handed it to him, sat down. Everybody's like, oh, we're going to say about this text. He's like, today, the scripture's fulfilled in your hearing. This is who I am. This is what I've come to do. Okay, so here's the thing I want you to get from this. What Jesus says, okay, the spirit of God is upon me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. What does that mean? What does that turn into? And then Jesus begins to read like a table of contents for his ministry. So this is what my ministry will be about as I'm led by the spirit. I will preach, I will heal, and I will bring deliverance. I will bring freedom. I will bring, I will set the oppressed free. I will bring freedom to prisoners. This is what Jesus came to do. Now the question is, what does freedom for the prisoners and setting the oppressed free, what does that look like? Now I want you to think for a second, we just went through this book a few months ago, think of Exodus. What does God do in order to deliver his people from bondage? What does he do in Exodus? He absolutely crushes the oppressor. Do you remember what what God did to Egypt? Crushes them. The first mention of the word salvation is after the crossing of the Red Sea. It's actually the very first worship song we have in the Bible. Exodus 15, it says, when Moses and the Israelites sang, sang the song to the Lord after they crossed the Red Sea, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. He's destroyed them. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. That's the first time the word used, salvation, right there. And what does it look like for God to save? It means that God has crushed the enemy, that God has broken the bonds of the oppressor. He has destroyed them. He goes after that which has been enslaved and has held us captive and he sets us free. So what does it mean for Jesus to set the oppressed free? What does it mean for Jesus? What does Jesus do? And the answer is, Jesus begins to show up and confront evil spirits. Turn to Mark 1, 23. This last time, I, well, actually, maybe not, but just turn there again. <laughs> Mark 1, 23. And let's see how Jesus dealt with the demonic. I love, I love this story. Look at how Jesus deals with the demonic. This is actually Jesus' first recorded exorcism. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Mark is a very, very action-packed book. I remember we taught on Mark, uh, starting this church, we taught on the book of Mark. And week three, I was already talking about Satan and demonization. It was awesome. <laughs> Mark just gets right into it. Look at verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach, like he does. And the people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus says sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what the is this? No, they didn't. What is this a new teaching and with authority he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him news about him spread quickly all over the whole region of Galilee oh man okay let's just look at this text for a few minutes preaching and casting out demons went hand in hand with Jesus preaching and casting out demons go hand in hand for the ministry of Jesus. There's a few reasons for this. The first one is, is demonstration. Jesus comes not just to preach good news, though he does come and preach good news. Good news, the best way to describe the gospel is the availability of the kingdom of God. That because of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the rule of God is available to anyone and everyone. Those that the religious system had cast out as not being available to God's kingdom, Jesus makes the availability of the kingdom of God to everyone. But Jesus doesn't just preach this, he demonstrates this. He, he literally embodies the good news. 
He comes to bring life. And as a result, all the stuff opposing God's way of life is both opposed and defeated in and through the life and the ministry of Jesus. So when Jesus comes on, he doesn't just say peace to you, but the very things that are tormenting you, he casts out so that you actually have peace. He teaches truth that confronts every lie that you've actually been believing. And those lies have to leave and, and submit under Jesus' rule and reign. He comes actually embodying and, 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 and explaining the gospel. One of my very favorite quotes of all time is from Leslie Newbegin about Jesus. He says, Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil, not to submit to them. His whole ministry is portrayed in the Gospels as a mighty onslaught on the works of the devil, whether these took the form of sickness and demon possession among the people or of hypocrisy, cruelty, and hard-heartedness among the rulers. And his whole ministry is interpreted as the breaking in of the reign of God into the life of the world to release those whom Satan has bound. So Jesus doesn't just come preaching this message, he comes embodying this message. So he shows up and he says, he's teaching in the synagogue, like in Mark, and he's teaching and he's talking about the availability of the kingdom of God. He's talking about the kingdom of God is now. He's saying, repent and believe the gospel. And then this demon hears him and Jesus demonstrates what he means by that by saying, and I will set the oppressed free. You're oppressed. Ha have nothing to do with this man. Come out, you unclean spirit. And the spirit has to leave and this man is healed. Jesus does this with infirmaries. Jesus does this with sicknesses, diseases. This is what Jesus does. He embodies the gospel. But the, the, uh, the second reason why, the second thing that, that Jesus um, both preaches the gospel and demonstrates the gospel or, or, or casts out demons is because Jesus is confronting lies. See, the other reason why there is a connection between Jesus' teaching and his authority to cast out demons was Jesus came as a teacher teaching the truth. Jesus is a truth teacher. Jesus' life and his teachings are the truth. Jesus is truth himself. He is truth itself. And when the truth is proclaimed with authority, it has the power to liberate people who are captive to lies. And here's why. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Jesus is ultimate reality. Jesus is truth. And he comes not just embodying truth, he comes teaching truth. He comes saying things you have heard it said, but I say to you, I'm gonna tell you the truth. You've been living in ways that, are, that are, don't line up with God's kingdom. Let me speak to you the truth. He comes and he tells people who have believed in lies for, for their entire lives, let me tell you the truth. And he speaks truth to them. And when he speaks truth to them, Spiritual bondage is broken. See, spiritual bondage is rooted in deception that becomes over time more and more deeply rooted in people's hearts and their minds. In other words, the main MO, the main modus operandi of Satan is lies. What Satan does is lie to you. This is the way Satan works. He lies, he deceives. And when Satan does tell the truth, he's setting up a deception. And they're subtle and they're very accurate. They're aimed in such a way to like inception you, if you've seen that movie, and get you to, get you to turn, if ever so subtly, away from God, making evil appear desirable, making God appear to be the adversary of our happiness, this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan, did Satan lie to Eve? No, he set up a deception. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? God didn't even, God didn't even talk like that. God said I can eat every tree except for one. He said enjoy all of it. But Satan just sets it up as to catch like, wait, what is, it? Is, God, is God keeping something from me? Am I, am I able to live in my full hat? What if I do want to, why, why wouldn't, well, I think, I think, I think, God doesn't want you to eat because he knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open. You'll be like him. He doesn't want you like him. What God doesn't want me like him? I want to I, I know. I want to know what he knows. Th th Satan just sows these subtle little lies in people's lives. I think most of the contact that people have with Satan in this room and demons in this room. If you don't even subscribe to like, oh, I don't really believe a demon can possess you or whatever. We can talk about that at a different time. The way that Satan influences most people in this room, myself included, is through lies.
He speaks lies to us. Turn over to John chapter eight, to the right. Keep your finger in, in Mark one, John eight. John eight, look at, look at verse 31. If this is not on the screen, but the last part of it will be on the screen. Eight, 31. Jesus is in a dispute with the, the religious leaders. He says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I, I want you to get this, Jesus' truth. Jesus' teachings are truth. Jesus says, if you follow my teachings, you follow the truth. If you wanna know the truth, follow me. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves to anyone, which is like the biggest lie ever, right? Of course they have. How can you say we shall be set free? Jesus replied, verily, truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you're really free. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. His word is truth. I'm telling you what I have seen in my father's presence and you are not doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they were answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing, doing the works of your father, Jesus says. We are not illegitimate, illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is a very fascinating text of scripture. What Jesus is saying is that, no, your father is not God, your father is Satan. Here's why, you only believe lies. I'm the truth, you don't believe me. You believe lies. And here's the thing, your father, the devil, is a liar and is a liar from the beginning. When he lies, that's his language. Like, right, we speak Aramaic, he speaks, speaks lies. When you and I speak English, Satan speaks lies. This is how Satan influences most of the people in this room through deception. Subtle lies that keep us in bondage, that trap us in fear and turn us from Jesus who is the truth. See, the Jews of Jesus' day called Satan Beelzebul, which means Lord of the flies. See, flies like to swarm on open wounds and trash of all kinds. See, in the same way, demons seek to capitalize on our emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical wounds. They seek to capitalize on all our trash and all of our junk. Injuries can make us particularly susceptible to demons and their two biggest weapons over us, lies and fear. In my study of demonization, it seems, and it was even mentioned in the Atlantic article, that demons have a unique access to us through trauma. And here's why, whether it's sexual abuse, emotional damage, abandonment, the reason why demons have a special unique access through trauma is because when trauma happens to us, Satan begins to lie to us. So something happens to us traumatic and a lot of us live through some traumatic stuff. And we hear lies from Satan like, you are damaged goods. You can't trust anyone ever again. The next person you love will do you worse than that. You deserved what happened to you. These are lies. And no one says them out loud to you necessarily. They're things that your own mind you think are telling you. And then what happens is even if you kind of don't believe them, you start to build your life around these lies. And you start to protect yourself because of these lies and become more insular and more lonely and more isolated and more afraid. Sins, wounds, lies distort our understanding of things. 
And Satan capitalizes, demons capitalize on this stuff and they lie to us. When we experience church trauma, we experience something really bad going down in a community group. We experience something really bad from one of our pastors. Satan lies to us. See, this is why the church can't be trusted. This is why you can never, you can never really follow Jesus. You've, you sin, something happens to you and, and Satan says, this is why you don't make a good Christian. Don't go to this church anymore. Go to somewhere else. Do something, go to brunch. It's way easier to go to brunch on Sunday morning. <laughs> and it's warmer in those restaurants than it is in this church. But that's true, it is. And this is what Satan does. This is, how, this, is, this is Satan's language. This is how he talks. He talks and lies. One thing I would like to do is to demystify the demonic for you. It can take the form of possession and writhing and creepy, deep, guttural voices. I have experienced those. But most times the demonic is simply, and it's not even that simple, but it's believing lies. During ministry time over this Holy Spirit series, when we call people forward, most of the things as I'm doing listening prayer and discerning what the Spirit's doing is unattaching people from lies they've been believing. Something that they've believed where they need to confess out loud with their mouths, I no longer tie myself to that lie. Just look at this story. This man walked in the synagogue that Jesus was teaching at and he was totally normal. He didn't look like a demoniac. He didn't walk in just like looking like the Hulk, you know, or whatever. Like that does not, it's not what happened. He just looked like a normal person. He was sitting next to someone at church. He looked normal. And what happened was Jesus began to teach the truth. Jesus began to say that he's the truth. And this man in his own heart began to turn toward the truth. And the demon started to manifest. Manifestation can look different. I've seen demons cry out like this. I've also seen it in a form of deep sadness or even anxiety. We're at a retreat recently and a friend of mine showed up for this retreat. So racked with anxiety, like you see it on, on his face, just so racked with anxiety and fear. And he's in ministry. And um, prayed for him. The next day I prayed for him. And then I think day three or two of the, of the retreat we were at, um, I, was, I was in a room and uh, Joe, um, Tucson, one of our elders, Dave McKinney, uh, minister of our, of our prayer ministry, come walking in with this friend. I'm like, hey, like, hey we're just gonna pray. I'm like, great. And they were prompted to pull him aside and pray for him because there was something going on that was like a little different. And so we began to pray for him. And as we were like, like praying for his disposition, praying for things, things there was a there was a moment when as we were listening to the spirit we felt like there was an unhealthy attachment to a lie and I just said I feel like there's an unhealthy attachment to a lie could you name what this lie and fear is out loud and speak it out loud as if to get it out from burrowing itself in your soul and then spoke it out and then both McKinney and Joe began to pray him through a deliverance to like renounce this lie, this spirit, this lie that has attached itself to his actual personality where he thought, well, just my personality. Like God was just exposing all these lies and it, was a, it wasn't even that long. I mean, it was maybe like five minutes of prayer. And then at the end, we're done praying. Like, how do you feel? He's like, a little better. I'm like, great. The next morning I saw him and he walks right up to me. And lit, his face was glowing. And I hadn't had coffee yet, so I was just like, bro, your face this is just too much for me right now. He's like, he walks up to me and goes, it's gone. And I'm like, who is? What happened? What's gone? He goes, no, it's gone. And I looked at his face and you can tell his countenance is completely different. I'm like, oh my gosh, praise God. Like this, this thing had burrowed itself so deep. This, I think this demonic sort of lie, demonic presence. I don't really even know how to actually identify it. If I said he had a spirit, you might be like, whoa, it was, that's, it was a lie. It could have been, I think it was spiritual. It was entrenched and embedded. And once you almost like spend time praying, calling out the lie, confessing it, denouncing it, aligning with Jesus, it, it, it was gone. 
See, lies do their worst damage when they're coupled with fear. I think some of you right now, you know you've been believing lies in the, and you fear like, what if I go up and something weird happens up there? And this is exactly what Satan and his demons love to do is to keep you trapped in your lie because of fear of what might happen. So you're stuck there and you can't move. You can't go this way, you can't go that way. Back to Mark 1. Let's look at this demon really quick. I have three minutes left, so let's look at this demon. This demon says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon is both taunting and giving Jesus respect at the same time. You notice that? He's like, hey, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? What do you do? Are here to destroy us or whatever? We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. We get it. You're the Holy One of God. Like it's both taunting and respect. See, demons are subject to Jesus, period. They are afraid of Jesus in the gospels. They know of his power. They know what he came to do. The only thing they try to do with Jesus is negotiate with Jesus. That's it. They never try to fight Jesus. They're like, oh, come on. Let's do this. Never try to fight Jesus. They're like, oh, could we um, go into those pigs? Can we do the pigs? We're so, Jesus, just like, don't torment us, man. Just don't, don't torment us. Like literally, they like start whining to Jesus. The demon, this is what demons do. Like Jesus is that powerful. It's not a fight. Jesus has authority, ultimate authority, which is why it's interesting to note that deliverance was unique to Jesus. The ancient prophets had performed many miracles, but there are zero Old Testament accounts of deliverances. See, this is why everyone said Jesus is a new teaching because Jesus had a new teaching that manifested in collision of spiritual kingdoms. Jesus came and he fought the devil. And this is why everyone was like, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He even orders impure spirits and they obey him. What is this new teaching? What is this new authority? Jesus had authority over demons. And look what it says in verse 25. Jesus says, be quiet, come out of him. And that was all he said. Be quiet, come out of him. That's all he said. Jesus gives very short, quick commands to demons and they always listen. The unpure spirit shook the man violently and he came out of him. This is the typical pattern. Demon pops up rudely. Jesus says, shut up, go away. They go away. Like, to de- just to demystify all of it. That's what, that's what happens. Now, so what about us? Let's, let's, get, let's get awkward for a second. What about us? Mark 6 says, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Notice that what it means to be filled with the Spirit is actually do the stuff that Jesus did on earth and both proclaim the gospel and have authority over the demonic. This is actually what you and I are called to do. This is actually a part of our discipleship to Jesus is to become like Jesus in that we actually have authority over the demonic. Now this might get some of you really excited. You're like, finally demon hunting. This is what I've been waiting for. For this whole series. And most of us are really, might be really freaked out right now. Like, wait, 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 wait. You were just saying how Jesus has his authority. Don't, don't be sending me out doing this stuff right now. It was weird that Jesus sends his disciples out really early doing this stuff. Really early in the gospels. He sends them out. Okay, now you guys go do this. Go and preach and cast out demons. So this is actually our, some of the things that we are a part of. So let me get really practical real quick. When praying for people that might have demonic manifestations or believe in demonic lies and we're praying for them as the ministers of the gospel of Jesus. First of all, write this down, don't be afraid. Jesus had all authority over demons. I can get how this can be frightening. The first time I honestly encountered someone who was manifesting a demon, I was really at the beginning, really scared. Honest, I was really scared until I began to think about Jesus and think if Jesus, if the demon has this much power, how much more power does God have? One of Satan's biggest weapons is fear. So if he can get you afraid, he knows he can have, 
you're on unsure footing. Don't be afraid. Stand on the finished work of Jesus. Stand on your, the finished work of Jesus he's done in your own life. Do not, there's a really cool story in Acts about these seven sons of Sceva who hear about casting out demons and they go try it out and they meet a demon guy and they're like, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, I say, be gone. I think that's how it works. And then they got their butts kicked by these demons. Now, my, I don't want you to go, hey, in the name of Jesus of the sermon that we just heard, you'll get beat up. I'm not gonna lie, you'll probably get beat up. You stand on your, the authority of Christ, that, well, for what Christ has done in you. You don't like, oh, about that thing. I, like, you don't depersonally, you, like it's, if Christ is in you, on the authority that, that, uh, of, that Christ has given me because of the finished work of the cross in my life, I say to you, whatever. So first of all, don't be afraid. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Second, deliverance is not so much ministry against demons as it is ministry to people in need. So when you encounter someone who is like tormented, the thing isn't to go, okay, let's do this, demon time. <laughs> it's actually ministry to the person in need. They're being tormented. So when confronting demons of any kind, whether in form of lies or deception or unforgiveness or anger, think like a warrior, be prayed up and full of the spirit. And because you're dealing with people in a very vulnerable situation, think like a shepherd, care for their souls, be kind, be a non-anxious presence, stand on the authority that you have in Christ and minister to them. Now, I can't say, I can't emphasize this enough. It, there's a very unlikely chance you will encounter a demon manifesting themselves through someone. It is very, very, very rare. And what I've studied, even in the Atlantic article, it refers to this. Anytime there's an exorcism request that comes in, there's a clinical, uh, uh, a clinical appointment done first to see if it, anything can be done through uh, psychotherapy or medication. And then it it kicks into, then there's other things. I mean, very, very few people actually get an exorcism. Most of the time it might be deliverance ministry through prayer and finding the lies and what you've believed about your past, like healing prayer. Very rarely do you meet someone who is demon possessed because possession means a demon has full control of that person's capacities, all of the control where they can't control themselves anymore. That means they've given their life over to Satan time and time again where they have no more of their own capacities. That is very, 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 very rare. I can't emphasize this enough. So if you're sitting there going, I might be possessed. <laughs> very rare. Chances are you might have manifested during this gathering already. To be honest, chances are that. And we're ready for that, by the way. No one? Okay. <clears throat> I, I, and I want to say this because I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to be like, oh my gosh, what if this thing turns into like the, the, the Ring movie or The Exorcist or something like that? What happens if that happens? Like you see, and by the way, all, the, all these really scary movies coming out about exorcisms are actually accounts from real exorcisms. Did you guys know that? Like they're actual real true accounts. Very, very, very rare. I don't know if that scares you more or less. I don't know. But more times than not, what you'll uncover is, is the way that evil spirits or forces have embedded themselves into someone's past or traumas or personality traits or sin patterns. And they've embedded themselves in believing lies. That is most often the case. So at that point, you pray with them. You wait on the Holy Spirit. You ask the Spirit to fill you. You pray things like, come Holy Spirit. Bless what God is doing in this person's life. Pray for them. And, and if you believe that there are lies that this person has attached to their very psyche, personality, identity, here are the, here are the best ways to pray. And you can take a picture of this on the screen. It's the best way to pray with someone through this. One is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Just ask that person to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior and I surrender my life to you. Ask them to, to, to pray, pray the prayer of repentance. Forgive me for, and then have them confess anything on their heart. Next is forgiveness. 
Have them forgive the people that they've harbored unforgiveness from. Like, have them confess. Or is there someone that you have not forgiven in your life? Conf- just forgive them right now. Let's say, say this. In the name of Jesus, I forgive so-and-so for this. Pray it. The thing is, Satan latches on to unforgiveness and it brings bitterness and anger and, it's, and it, it, it like literally starts attaching to us that we begin to believe lies about that person and other people. Like, in the name of Jesus, I forgive. Like, have them. F- and then the third thing is really important is renunciation. This is like a form of uh, confession where in the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of pride or the spirit of rebellion. I renounce the spirit of lust or the spirit, what, the thing that's, that's, that's attached to them, the spirit of abandonment or whatever it is, like I renounce that. I renounce my unholy tie to this thing where it's become so close to me that I'm afraid of when it's, if, it, if it ever left me, I don't, what I would do. Like have them renounce that. And then next is command. Command in the name of Jesus to break the power of all of that stuff over your life. I command you in the name, I say in the name of Jesus, I break the power of every lie, every unclean thing that has attached to me, I renounce it in, in Jesus' name and I command you to leave me now. And the last blessing. Thank you, God, I'm your child. Thank you that when you look at me, I'm covered with grace because of Jesus and what he's done. Like this is, this, is the, this is the ministry that you and I can be a part of. And even if it's like on your phone, you can just pull. Like the, the thing is, is that we, we, we think that we have to be like um, experts in this stuff right away. Like it's super helpful just to have this on your phone and go, I'm just gonna pray this with you. Is that cool? I'm gonna pray repentance and faith, forgiveness, renunciation, command, blessing. And what, might, what you will find is um, some vis, it might be some visceral reactions that even might even happen during the teaching today. Like as I'm teaching the truth of Jesus, you might have even felt a visceral reaction in your body, like you are angry toward me, or you're angry at this church, or you feel like I just wanna, I just wanna yell, like I just don't like what's being said, I can't, like that, that manifestation, that like subtle manifestation is sometimes like evil in your body that you've literally t- like tied yourself to that Jesus is putting his finger on saying, I want that dealt with. And it doesn't want to be dealt with. And so you have this visceral response. You might, you might sense that when you're praying through these things for someone. And it's important just to keep pastorally, prayerfully praying through this. Let's just do this. Let's trust Jesus. He's all about freedom. He's all about breaking this, this, our, our ties to sin like this.